Hello, Mainly fans. A happy 2023 to you, wherever you may be listening from. I'm your host, Ian Saxine, and I'm excited to be back with you all to keep asking questions about Maine and New England history that it maybe hadn't occurred to you to ask for yourself just yet. Quick status update. Anna Kendrick has, as of this recording, not demonstrated any awareness of our loving Christmas tribute to her cinematic opus, Noel. So there's that. Our first show for you this year is not holiday related in any way. Instead, it takes you back to the late 19th century, a time when politicians from Maine enjoyed what was possibly their greatest period of influence in D.C. Two of these figures, James G. Blaine and Thomas Brackett Reed, the middle initials and names are very important for some reason, they served as Speaker of the House during key periods of time, in particular relating to voting and civil rights. One of them, Blaine, unsuccessfully ran for president against Grover Cleveland, the only individual as of 2023 to occupy the White House for two non-consecutive terms, having been narrowly defeated in 1888. Given the recent interest in the House Speakership, thanks to the contested election of Kevin McCarthy to the post, and the rumblings that a certain Donald J. Trump is openly trying to do a Cleveland in 2024, this seemed like a good time to present this episode. A historical note is in order. This episode was recorded in December 2022, before my customary holiday hiatus. As a result, Nancy Pelosi was still Speaker of the House. Another important point for us, the historian Heather Cox Richardson The historian Heather Cox Richardson, an authority on the late 19th century, an author of a major history of the Republican Party, and a more recent Substack and podcast powerhouse, had responded to Trump's presidential re-election announcement with rhetorical guns blazing, threatening to unleash, in her words, an 8,000-tweet thread in defense of Grover Cleveland, who she claimed doesn't deserve this. Now, I respect the hell out of Heather Cox Richardson, but my dislike of Grover Cleveland far exceeds my deference to the great Boston College-affiliated historian. So I called up my friend and early guest of the pod, Gideon Cohn Postar, who also shares my dislike for Grover Cleveland, and more importantly, knows a lot about Gilded Age politics. Maine's great figures in it, and who can supply the footnotes for our Cleveland bashing. And so Gideon and I recorded what you're about to hear. Because yes, if we're going to talk about terrible second acts by bad presidents coming back to the White House, yeah, Grover Cleveland does in fact deserve this. He deserves to be mocked and criticized on separate non-consecutive occasions. This episode covers themes of race and reconstruction, including, of course, the role of Maine and Mainers in it. 
that we've dealt with in the past. You might consider checking out our interviews with Shanette Garrett-Scott on Maynard Adelbert Ames's time presiding over Mississippi's experiment in multiracial democracy after the Civil War, and my other earlier interview with Gideon about the labor movement and its fight for the secret ballot in Gilded Age America, with special focus again on our own Maine, and in particular the city of Portland. I realize that whole, this episode contains themes of such and such, makes you think there'd be some kind of parental advisory. But your kids are fine, unless they're upset by terrible presidents like Grover Cleveland, in which case, hide them. Hide them now. Let's do this. Today, we have a returning guest, Dr. Gideon Cohn-Postar, 19th century U.S. historian and former policy advisor to the House Oversight Committee. Gideon, welcome back to Mainly History. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad I uh, earned the right to return. Oh, with, with flying colors. Well, and of course, you know, inside baseball, but we, we did go to graduate school together. We overlapped for a whole year. Yeah, it's true. We did. We did. So bonds forged through whatever that was. Yes. All right. So today uh, you're here to talk about some very prominent main speakers of the House and their role in late 19th century U.S. politics, uh, including uh, some particularly entertaining scandals and also their run-ins with a man who has once again become relevant, the one and only Grover Cleveland, the only non-consecutive. In this this talk, we are going to destroy his relevance and uh, public acclaim, right? That's the plan. Yes. Oh, that's right. One of the one of the odd things that we have bonded over in the past has been our mutual disdain for Grover Cleveland. Just to begin with, I'm wondering, since you're you're a Gilded Age scholar, so many Gilded Age presidents in the late 19th century really do have uh, well full names, really that just sound like they're Muppets. Do you have a do you have a theory as to why? Do you think that the the sort of cartoon world and Muppet world just took inspiration from Gilded Age politicians? Or I, I mean, I hope that's the direction the causation went. That the the, the Muppet people were looking for seemingly inoffensive people covered in hair or fur and thought of Gilded Age presidents. Mm. Um, you know, I, I could believe that. Because I'm thinking, you know, Grover Cleveland, Rutherford B. Hayes, Chester A. Arthur. These are just, all of them seem like they would be making appearances on Sesame Street if you just were to list those names to most Americans. I, I would hope they would at least remember one, maybe two of those, but... Um, I'm betting it's not going to be Chester A. Arthur. Probably not. Probably not. The late 19th century has been pointed out by others smarter than me as arguably a peak era of Maine's influence in American politics in terms of uh, big shot people from Maine holding political office. First, Hannibal Hamlin, another amazing name as Lincoln's vice president. That would have been a good Muppet, too. 
He would have been. He would have been. Uh, he also would have been a great president, I would argue, compared to Andrew Johnson. But I don't think you're the only one who would argue that. No, it's, it's true. But so there was Hannibal Hamlin as vice president and Senator William Pitt Fessenden during the Civil War. And then there was James G. Blaine, speaker from the great state of Maine of the House, 1869 to 1875. And then Thomas Brackett Reed, Speaker of the House, 1889 to 91, and then 1895 to 99. So is there any reason that you can think of for the prominence of the pine tree state at this time in American politics? I do think some of it is an accident of timing. Uh, James Blaine, for instance, was not born in Maine. Uh, He was born in Pennsylvania and moved to Maine later in life. Uh, So I, I think that Blaine was a, a remarkable politician, an advocate who would have been uh, prominent no matter where he was. But I do think that Maine carried some unique advantages in that time. Uh, one is that in this era of Republican Party dominance, Maine was a staunchly Republican but not safe Republican state. It was a place where Republican politicians were likely to be reelected. So they didn't have to spend all their time campaigning and, and fighting for re-election, but they still had to try. They still had to develop political skills. Uh, and so I think that definitely, uh, maybe on the margins at least, could help explain why Maine politicians rose. Uh, I also think it's important to point out that Maine famously voted early. This era was an era of non-standardized election timing. States would hold elections at various times, but for the most part, they held their congressional elections in November. Uh, and Maine was the big exception, or one of the big exceptions. They voted in September, and that early voting meant that there was a lot of attention uh, in this era before polling, before uh, kind of the science of polling took off. Trying to figure out what the electorate thought was only possible through actually looking at the electorate to see what uh, people who were voting uh, believed and who they would vote for. And the fact that Maine voted a couple months before the rest of the country meant that people would get to know the names of Maine representatives. They would see them and people would talk about what it meant that Thomas Reed got reelected narrowly in this one seat. And for the next two months, that would, you know, that would be one of the main topics of conversation. I, I don't know if there's a way to quantify that, but I think it definitely helped. But beyond that, I really do think it's just some of these men put themselves to the fore and were able to, you know, let their political and especially oratorical gifts take over. Before we we get into some of the the specifics of what they did, uh, the office of Speaker of the House uh, has been mentioned and it'll play a role in our talk. And Americans now are once again sort of forced to pay attention to what, in fact, the Speaker of the House does. For those who maybe are not um, up on all these things, what power does the Speaker of the House have? And then what are their constitutional functions as well? Well, I think it's critical that you mention the constitutional function. Uh, The Speaker of the House is a constitutional office. It's mentioned in the Constitution that the House must choose its Speaker. Um, And there's a lot of debate as to kind of what the intention of the founders were in creating this office. The Speaker is not really mentioned in the Federalist Papers, for instance. It was not, you know, controversial or interesting enough for them to mention it. Um, And kind of what the role of the Speaker in this Congress would be is kind of a little up for debate at first. Some people thought that the role of the Speaker would be similar to uh, the Speaker in the British Parliament, who is 
kind of intended to moderate debate and help guide a lot of the discussion, but isn't supposed to be kind of a partisan actor, is, is supposed to help. And, and this is still the case in British in the British Parliament that the elected speaker uh, is intended to kind of be set apart from the rest of the members in that respect. But the speaker very quickly in the United States became both a party leader, uh, a kind of a guide, a guide of action on the floor of the House, and also still having this constitutional duty of, of kind of being the leader of the House. And I and believe so, the first speaker was James Madison, correct? I believe so, yes. Okay. But it wasn't really until the early 1800s that uh, speakers began to kind of, especially as parties solidified, speakers started to take on kind of that role of guiding legislation. There was actually debate for much of the 19th century as to whether the speaker should vote on the House floor. You know, should the speaker be able to actually cast a vote as a normal representative? Um, and it is still really rare today for the speaker to vote for legislation. It's often when the speaker wants to express a strong endorsement of a particular piece of legislation, uh, they'll vote for it. Uh, or I guess if there's a one vote majority that they need to maintain. But generally, the speaker tries to maintain a little bit of distance uh, between being a normal member. Uh, and part of that, and I think probably more listeners will know this than they would have just uh, you know, a few years ago, the Speaker of the House does not have to be a member of the House of Representatives. The Constitution just says this, the House of Representatives will choose their Speaker. Now, it, so far, it always has been. It always has been a member. Uh, but in the past, people uh, in, in voting for the Speaker have voted for non-members. Some voted for Colin Powell. I think that was the most famous case. Uh, and so you know, this this office is both very well-defined constitutionally, like it is d described as being elected by the members of the House, and also in terms of its powers and authority, pretty ill-defined. And that has meant that the character and party power of the person who occupies the office matters a great deal in terms of what they do with that office. Okay. Now, by the late 19th century, what were the things that the Speaker of the House were doing with that office in terms of, you know, shaping the trajectory of what kinds of legislation made it to the floor, that kind of thing, setting policy? Absolutely. So the Speaker in the late 19th century was also a party leader. So they're responsible for leading the majority party in the House. Um, they're guiding legislation. They decide what pieces of legislation come up for a vote. And critically, they help set the rules of the House. The Speaker typically would serve on the Rules Committee. When Thomas Reed uh, was Speaker, for example, uh, he kind of led the Rules Committee. Uh, and it was very much a committee of one, even though there are other people on it. And they're able to decide what the character of the legislation that comes up would be. Uh, there was a great deal of debate in this time about what a dilatory motion was. So a dilatory motion is basically something to delay the business of the House. The House is a parliamentary body. It has to uh, carry itself in good order. People can introduce motions. They're voting on bills. And the Speaker is really supposed to help make sure that the House moves forward, that the business of the House is legislation and debate and discussion and not just wasting time for political purposes or for the sake of wasting time. Uh, and so many of the speakers of the House in the late 19th century were consumed with this problem, the dilatory emotions, uh, trying to figure out how to balance the rights of members of Congress to debate and also the need to push forward with legislation. And uh, James Blaine encountered this as well when he was Speaker of the House, uh, particularly in the debate over uh, the Civil Rights Bill of uh, 1875. Hmm. 
this was, I believe it was, it was the House of Representatives where the filibuster first arose before migrating to the Senate. Is that correct? Well, so it depends on how you define filibuster. Um, but uh, the filibuster in the Senate is kind of an, the fact the case of an absence of a rule to end debate. Right. Uh, the filibuster in the House, which uh, is Aaron Burr's fault uh, when he was uh, presiding <laughs> over the Senate. Uh, yet another thing we can lay at his feet. Yet another historical figure who is enjoying a little bit too much of a vogue these days. I keep trying to remind people, yes, 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 he sings, but he also was potentially a traitor to the United States. But I thought it was the vogue. That. He's a fa- He was a relative partisan for women's rights yes. at the time, such as it was. Like I think he was... You know, not opposed to uh, women voting who qualified under the other metrics, you know, whatever sort of property ownership or what have you. Yeah, yes. but he was also potentially a traitor to the United States. He was. He murdered he was. a man in a duel. But he, he did. That's right. I know. There's a little bit of like, so other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. I, fair enough. Fair enough. But that's a different podcast episode. That's, it is. It is. Yeah. So, yeah. So switching over. So, okay. Yeah. Uh, were there any major differences before we we get to what some of these people did? Were there any major differences between how the the Speaker of the House, uh, what powers it was always a he he held versus the the powers of the Speaker today that like Nancy Pelosi currently holds? So there were differences. Uh, a lot of them come down to kind of the character of the majority that they lead, though. Um, nowadays, the Speaker of the House very much sets the agenda. Um, the committee process of the House, uh, where legislation moves its way, this is what's called regular order. Legislation is introduced, uh, is sent to committees, uh, debated in those committees, then comes to the floor of the House, and then is voted on. And the Speaker was kind of intended to kind of keep control over the floor of the House, but things in committees would generally happen as the committee chairs wanted them to. Um, now the speaker uh, has a lot more control over committees. Um, the speaker obviously sets who is appointed to various committees uh, in consultation with uh, the minority leader. Uh, and that was uh, generally true in the past as well. Uh, but through more rules and procedures than laws, the speaker now has a lot more control over the pace of legislation getting to the floor of the house and kind of just in general through control of the party, uh, through the majority party, the speaker is able to show a lot more control over the agenda that's set. In the 19th century, there would be a lot more, I, I think the general term would be chaos. Uh, the idea that you know, what's happening on the floor of the house uh, was dynamic and it was, it, you know, the speaker is trying to control the debate on those, in those moments, but had very few tools to do so. The speaker could, uh, you know, stop someone from speaking if they specifically thought it was a dilatory motion, but that was controversial and then would require a vote of the House. Just in general, the Speaker was able to control action on the House floor to some extent, um, but very little beyond that. And I think that's one of the things that's that's definitely changed, is that the, the business of the House is not just the House floor, and the Speaker now has a lot more control over everything that takes place off of it. Gotcha. And listeners who are interested in drama on the house floor should they would be well suited to start with joanne freeman's books about 19th century often even violent interactions on the floor and sort of the the level of just hurly burly chaos as as you put it uh in in the day-to-day running of the the house of representatives yes and and i also think it's important to mention that at this time there were no 
official house office buildings. So members are living in rooming houses throughout the city. They're only in D.C. temporarily. The Congress is in session uh, usually twice, but often for special sessions. So for a few months at a time, and then they would return home to their states and districts. Often families wouldn't accompany them the whole time. Uh, generally, they're doing their business in their rooming houses, which are often shared and often are divided by state. So a lot, oftentimes, you know, the main representatives might all live in the same rooming house, that kind of thing. Or they're sitting at their desks on the house floor, or writing their letters, you know, carrying on the business of the house. Uh, it's just a far different world than the one we encounter today, where we have you know, extensive staffs and house office buildings and kind of, a, you know, the mechanisms of government around these members are far more extensive in part because the country is far more extensive and complex right. and what they're asked to do is a, a great deal more complex. But I do think it's, it's worth noting that, yes, it's still the same house. It's still the same, you know, legal constitutional offices, but everything else about it has changed. And so it, it's important whenever anyone says, oh, if only we had a speaker like Thomas Reed, and I confess it's mostly me who's saying that, not many people say that <laughs> otherwise, uh, you know, I have to remember that, you know, Speaker Reed was able to talk to every single member of the House on the House floor, you know, th there'd be no staff to go through, like, it truly yeah. is a different world. One of the ideas that almost everybody has about the way the House and the Senate run that I think is inaccurate, and this is... Uh, one of the it was put this way uh, by a, a knowledgeable person where they said one fact that helps explain the business of the Senate in particular is that senators hate being inside of the Senate actually there and they almost never are. And so when one of them is speaking, it's almost always to an empty room or close to it. And and nobody's most of the time they, they hate being there. And my understanding is the House is similar, although maybe not quite so extreme. Yes. Yeah, and, and I do think that it's worth noting that speeches on the House floor are typically, there's a whole process for it, are, are typically not germane to whatever the legislation is going on. So there might be a, a vote going on later that day on a budgetary issue, but a number of members of Congress want to give what are called one-minute speeches on a, a different, maybe a community issue in their district, you know, whatever it might be. And so even if there is a crowd of people there, even if there is a decent number of members on the floor, they might be listening to speeches that truly have nothing to do with the legislation they're about to discuss. <laughs> and that's just the way it's designed. It's because those speeches are uh, kind of for home consumption. They're often on very important issues. They're just unconnected to each other. And so that's really, you know, that, that, of course, always has happened in politics, always in the House, there'd be people giving speeches on local issues. But it was much more common in the era of Blaine and Reed for members to get into debates on the House floor discussing what, you know, what they're doing. Um, I, I mean, one key element to mention in this, though, is the acoustics of the House chamber, which were not great in this uh, era. And okay. in an era without microphones and, with, and without reliable means of, uh, you know, extending the, the power of your voice, um, being heard, especially as I mentioned, you know, people are conducting business on the House floor. If they are on the House floor, they might be doing other things, having conversations. And so you might be giving a great speech and only the people in the desk near you can hear it. So being able to have a, a loud voice was an important qualification too. Last question about the 19th century house. When did they get rid of the spittoons? You know, I don't know the exact date. I would okay. not be surprised if it's later than we expect. Okay. So at least for the purposes of this podcast, the listeners should assume spittoons everywhere for all of our, all of our anecdotes. 
Absolutely. I, I think okay. as long as you and I are talking, there's a spittoon nearby. That's okay. That should be the assumption. That's the assumption. Okay. <laughs> so let's start with uh, James G. Blaine, who um, arguably is the is the closest that a, a Mainer got to being elected president of the United States, as opposed to just you know vice president. His big time in the sun, uh, if you will, was the election of 1884. And James Blaine was a real, he was a real political powerhouse. And yet this election of 1884, which does not result in Blaine mania around the nation, <laughs> Blainia, uh, is, is a disappointment for him. So if you could set the scene for us, uh, why is James G. Blaine, because seemingly there's a law you have to use his middle initial when you're talking about him. I don't know why. I, I think it adds to the gravitas. Mm, that's true. That's true. The, G the for gravitas. The Muppet. That's right. G is is the, the short. His middle name is Gravitas. James Gravitas Blaine. So he would have been elected president if it was. I'm sure it was. That's true. Uh, it was probably something what like Gilbert, wasn't it? Uh, <laughs> is it embarrassing to confess that I don't remember? Uh, it's okay. It's okay. So James Blaine. Uh, if you could set the stage for us, what are this man's accomplishments as as Speaker of the House and in politics that get him to this auspicious moment in 1884? Right. So Blaine, first off, was a newspaperman. Uh, we we can think of him as getting his start in politics in that way. Um, that was after he moved to Maine. Uh, before the Civil War, kind of took up the newspaper business, very quickly gets elected to the state legislature, and then rises during the Civil War to the U.S. House of Representatives, and then, you know, within just a couple of years, is Speaker of the House. And, and that was much more common at the time than it is now, when you have to serve to the House for 30 years to, you know, rise through the ranks. Um, the House was had a lot more turnover. People would run for one or two terms and, and then return. Um, and so Blaine, after just a few years, uh, develops political power, is, is widely well-liked. Um, he's a Republican and in an era of Republican dominance and very quickly becomes Speaker of the House and helps usher through uh, many of the Reconstruction bills that American historians like you and I uh, think very fondly of, despite uh, limitations and uh, failures to fully enact them. And also, of course, the Supreme Court knocking many of them down. Blaine positions himself as an opponent of Andrew Johnson, who assumes the presidency uh, after Lincoln is assassinated. And it, it's kind of through that battle that Blaine becomes seen as, and it's kind of strange to think about it this way now, but he's seen often as a champion of African-American political rights in this era. He was very supportive of many of the Black congressmen who were sent to the House. Um, he, at one point, while serving as Speaker, yielded the chair to a black congressman, making him the first uh, black man to preside over the house. Uh, there are all these, you know, somewhat oh, small. But what was this guy's pressure. name? Just so we we get that on the record. Have I'm assuming it was a representative from a southern state, uh, since they sent most black representatives in the 19th century were from uh, were from southern districts. If I remember right, I think it's Joseph Rainey, who is from South Carolina. Ah, okay, okay, and uh, yeah, it, I mean. Yeah. And so I, I do think there, there are moments where you see Blaine in this way. And then, of course, um, as I mentioned before, the 1875 fight over the Civil Rights Bill. This was one where 
the Republicans had just lost their House majority. So this fight takes place during the lame duck session. So after they've lost, but before they have to concede control of Congress. Back then, we should that, add, in those days, the lame duck was really long. It was like 11 months. It was ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> the lame duck session goes on for quite a while. Uh, I guess it took a long time to travel, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I guess count results and like figure stuff out and, you know. Yeah. So it's, it, it definitely takes a while to get there. And so yeah. Republicans lose control of the House for the first time since the Civil War in the 1874 election, in large part because of a calamitous economic recession that begins the year before and kind of doesn't end <laughs> for the next 30 years. Um, and so you know, they're really facing that shock. Democrats are taking control of the House, they're not the Senate. It means kind of an end to the Reconstruction project legislatively, though historians have debated for many years when Reconstruction actually ends. But this is a moment when, okay, no more positive legislation is going to be coming from the House. And Blaine is still Speaker of the House. And he's been a very popular speaker, even to Democrats who, despite their opposition to him, have generally thought him to be a very fair, um, you know, leader of the House and has always recognized them when they want to speak, that kind of thing. In this debate, though, a huge fur over dilatory motions rises up. So Democrats realize they can actually just run out the clock. Uh, they're going to get control of the House. They need to stop um, the civil rights bill from passing. And uh, they fight for it. They, they, they attempt, they, they raise a series of motions and uh, constantly speechify. And a number of Republicans are growing upset at this and try to get the speaker to rule uh, through his power through the rules committee and also speaker that all dilatory motions uh, can be ruled out of order and we can just move on. And this is very controversial. It kind of is seen as, oh my God, you're trampling on free speech and the ability of a member of Congress, a, you know, an august body uh, to make their voice heard. Blaine isn't willing to go that far. He actually settles for kind of a compromise, which is just that as speaker, he's able to determine a truly dilatory motion and that he will stop those. So he'll basically speed debate along, but he won't stop debate. That kind of helps, but the bill itself, which very much is a precursor to the Civil Rights Act of, 18, of 1964, was meant to block discrimination uh, in a whole host of ways, you know, railroad discrimination uh, initially had an education discrimination provision. Um, many of those get watered down. The, the education provision in particular is struck completely from the bill after many versions are debated. Um, and, and it does pass. So like the, the Civil Rights Act is passed. Um, it goes on the books. It's weakened substantially by that process. And the Supreme Court later guts much of it um, and rules that much of it is, is not enforceable. And crazily enough, the Supreme Court that guts it is Republican appointed judges, too. Absolutely. So and, this is a, you know, shifts. <laughs> well, and, and, and this is kind of one of those moments where when, when talking about this era in history, it really is hard sometimes to explain that people who could proudly fight against the Confederates during the Civil War as Republicans, as Union soldiers, could so quickly go down the path of saying, you know, there's nothing we need to do for African-Americans uh, in the South or throughout the country. Um, obviously, racism <laughs> explains a great deal of that. Uh, but so much of it also is trying to explain how someone could be both racist and fight for the Union. Uh, right. And and I think that this is one of those moments where we can see these people who staunchly opposed secession and, you know, are good Republicans, the meaning of good Republican changes. And, right. you know, being a staunch advocate for Black people 
is not always a part of that definition after the Civil War. And Blaine is kind of one of those people who, despite, as I've mentioned, being seen largely as, you know, there for Black congressmen and, and being willing to push these issues, very quickly is willing to moderate that sentiment. He is now widely perceived as one of those men who decided that if it was politically advantageous for the Republican Party to jettison Black voters, to kind of allow you know, white supremacist rule in parts of the South, or, or at the very least, you know, kind of moderate the appeals for racial equality. Uh, the, you know, these are all euphemisms for embrace white supremacy. Uh, right, right. He was willing to do it. And, and it's clear the rest of his political career, he was willing to make that compromise. And that, I think, is all the more, you know, heartbreaking, but also interesting when noting that earlier in his career, he was willing to stand up for Black rights. Yeah. And I think one one other way to, you know, maybe frame this is there's something to be said for a lot of the northern white public too, the way their press covers Reconstruction in the South by the early 1870s or so, you get this tone kind of similar to like how a lot of Americans started talking about Afghanistan in the early 21st century of like, oh, are you saying there's still problems over there and we're still stationing soldiers in this faraway land? Because for somebody in Minnesota, having regiments stationed in, you know, Alabama or whatever was kind of similar. And so they're yeah, going, oh, far away. Land. Mean, yeah. And the, are you saying these people haven't sorted it out yet? You're saying they they still need American troops so they can safely go to school and, you know, all the rest. There was that real tone coming out of a lot of northern white republicans in the press by the early to mid 1870s the sort of like and, and oh, that, haven't you solved this problem already come on yeah and, and absolutely and and one of the kind of contributing factors to that is this you know big recession the panic of 1873 which kind of narrows the political space mm. um suddenly you know in these pocketbook issues um there doesn't seem to be as much room for the republican party to talk about race and, and to talk about racial justice and, and and equal rights and i i think it's important to note though that this was a calculation a lot of republican politicians said voters care about pocketbook issues so that's what we're going to campaign on they could very well have campaigned still, uh, you know, on preserving democracy and equal rights. Like, I, I think it's important to emphasize how much these are choices they take. Right. And it's not necessarily the case that if, you know, if, if men like Blaine in the late 1870s had said, you know what, we're still going to, you know, advocate forcefully for, for Black rights, voters sometimes respond to what their leaders say. And it's not always a groundswell that the, they must listen to. Sometimes the voters are confused and frightened and, and don't know what to make of sending troops to Alabama. And if their leaders say, this is why we're doing it, well, maybe they'll actually be okay with it. So then that is leads to my next question. If in 1880, the Republicans can run war hero and not at all Jim Henson character, James A. Garfield... Yeah, don't forget that middle initial. Uh, that's right. Got to have the middle initials for this, right? But having Garfield runs as kind of a back to basics, let's not abandon our African-American brethren, you know, in the South kind of Republican, as well as an anti-corruption president. And he, of course, is assassinated early into his first term in 1881. So if the Republicans run Garfield successfully in 1880, why then do they not 
run the campaign of 1884, led by James Blaine, the speaker during this civil rights legislation, right? Why does Blaine run in 1884 as not a Garfield type Republican? What changed? Well, well, I think it's critical to note that Blaine serves in Garfield's cabinet. He is a Garfield Republican in that sense. Ah, right? okay. He, he, okay. He, he becomes Secretary of State. So he, he'd since, um, in between these things, he's uh, appointed and then elected to the U.S. Senate. Uh, so he leaves the speakership and goes to the Senate uh, and then is appointed Secretary of State under Garfield. Um, and he resigns shortly after uh, Garfield is assassinated. Um, kind of there's some debate you know pushed out or or left to allow arthur to pick his own man that kind of stuff okay. um but you know blaine is happy to do that like secretary of state obviously is focused on foreign issues uh more so than domestic but you know he he joins garfield's project he he sees you know perhaps for political advantage but he doesn't say oh garfield has advocated and and we should stress Garfield does not make his whole campaign about civil rights. Uh, he, he talks right. about many other things as well, but he is, you know, a staunchly pro civil rights president and Blaine is willing to go along with that. He thinks that's fine. Uh, it's only when he starts running and, you know, is kind of confronted with the idea that the only issue that Americans seem to care about is uh, corruption and then tied to that also the tariff. So, uh, the protective tariff that, you know, as Republicans argue, helps protect manufacturing. That is, you know, kind of the campaign that is run in 1884 is talking about those issues. But again, this is a political choice, right? Blaine thinks that campaigning on the tariff, campaigning on economic well-being um, is the right choice. And part of that is because, you know, well, part of that is just, you know, he decides that Northern voters will respond to that, but also black voters are being intimidated and driven from the polls in the South. Uh, you know, the, the 1870s witnessed the return of a bunch of white supremacist governments in Southern states. Black voters haven't been fully disenfranchised, but they are being pressed heavily. Uh, there, there are many places where it's become dangerous to, you know, it always had been, but increasingly dangerous for black voters and politicians uh, to participate in politics. And so the Republican Party of the South is seemingly not the strongest port wing of that party. It's, it's under great right. strain. And so in that environment saying, as Blaine does, you know, perhaps we should focus on the issues of you know, the Northern voter, the Western voter. Uh, this is also a time when Blaine supports the Chinese Exclusion Act, which is largely seen as a sop to Western politicians. Uh, he seems pretty clear that he supports the Chinese Exclusion Act and he supports earlier versions of it too, to get votes in California. And so he's trying to build, you know, a national Republican party and is making calculations as to what portions of that party he should appeal to. Interesting. And that is, it is a precursor to the Republican Party that emerges by 1896 that is clearly able to win elections resoundingly while ignoring the South. Right. Which is a pretty grim, I mean, they do it. So the same year of Plessy v. Ferguson, the Republicans win a, a pretty substantial victory at the national level. And, and just you know, to put, not to be too, not to oversimplify it, but in general, that's when the sort of lesson, one of the lessons taken from this is arguably, oh, the Republican Party can win healthy national majorities and not worry about the welfare of Black people in the South. Right. And and I think that's a great comparison because you can see the starts of that 
kind of coalition in 1884, where Cleveland mm. wins the South and then is trying to pick off a few swing states. In this era, it's always the same, like five or six states. It's Connecticut, Indiana, New York, sometimes Ohio. You know, there, There's this set of states that are always kind of decided by a percent or two. And Cleveland is able to win the solid South, though it isn't yet fully called that, and picks off just enough of these you know, swing states to win. And I, I think that was very telling to a lot of Republicans. They're thinking, oh, they're starting with this group of states that they'll always be able to win. And Republicans have a group of states they'll generally be able to win. You know, the upper Midwest, the Northeast are, are staunchly Republican for the most part. Um, now we're going to fight it out over the middle. Okay, so what does the middle want? Right. Um, and that decision to say we're not going to fight over the South uh, is, is a lot of political calculation and it, it takes years and and there are still you know republicans who are arguing for appealing to people in the south it's just sometimes they're arguing for appealing to white moderates in the south instead of black voters um, and so yes they abandoned black voters in the south but don't think for a minute that they're abandoning the south fully yet like they're still they're still wanting to win those states right they're just trying to figure out how to do it and they're and willing to make that calculation and, and kind of abandon black voters if they need to this is where you get the so-called lily white Republicans versus the black and tans, as they rather crudely call them in the, uh, the, the multiracial delegation. So arguably, the, thinking about that, yeah, one of the one of the errors of running Blaine is that starting in 1876, it's the Republicans uh, winning candidates are all uh, bearded guys from. Well, they're all men from Ohio. <laughs> with more or less facial hair, right? Hayes, Blaine had some Blaine had some facial hair. That's too. true, he did, but he wasn't from Ohio. But we've got true. Hayes, Garfield, Benjamin Harrison, William McKinley, and then fast forward Taft and Harding. Like the sort of era of Republican dominance is overwhelmingly Ohio-born or at least affiliated Republican presidents. Yeah. Though, of course, Harrison is an Indiana man. Don't oh, forget. I thought he was Ohio. Okay. The same thing, really. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Indiana was famously the home of vice presidents. Yes. Uh, above all. Because it was a swing, a swing state. state, but not, you know, yeah. not one important enough. Yeah. That's right. I, I do think it's worth noting that, you know, so many presidents come from Ohio. Also, so many astronauts come from Ohio. What is it about Ohio that people want to get away? Yes. Yeah. Also, really angsty rock bands. Because uh, living in Ohio is just, you know, oppresses the soul and just really makes one produce great music. I think you're going to lose torment. votes in Ohio if you say something like that. I, am, I worry about true. your electoral prospects. Either. It's true. It's true. Well, I mean, Ohio is really losing its swing state uh, cred these days. And so true. Uh, in the great, yes. But hopefully, hopefully if there's an electoral college of podcasting, you know, I do not suffer in it. So Blaine is running in 1884 against Grover Cleveland, one of these other main characters, this, uh, this non-main actually, he's not, that's, <laughs> that's true. Sorry, I had to. Well, well played, well played. Uh, but just first of all, if they're arguing about the tariff, could you maybe help uh, our audience today understand why so many Americans on all sides of the issue got so worked up about tariffs? This is something my students consistently just fail to like to, to, to grasp, you know, and they have to be so like, no, they cared a lot about the tariff. Yeah, I, I feel like the best way to understand the tariff is to think about issues that we care about today, unemployment, 
federal deficit, balance of trade, so exports and imports, union or labor rights and power, uh, and then uh, the currency. So, you know, like how money circulates inflation and deflation. All of those things are the tariff. They're all, at least in part, encapsulated in the tariff. This is an era before uh, the federal, universal federal income tax. There was an income tax during the Civil War, but uh, it, it's kind of drawn down. The main way the U.S. government makes money is through the tariff, through uh, taxing goods that enter the United States. The main way uh, that they, you know, kind of political parties, oh, and I should have mentioned also party control, the main way that political parties reward, you know, donors, financiers, advocates, you know, people who fought the good fight is by giving them positions uh, running customs houses. It's, it's a terrific job to run a customs house. Uh, that's where Chester Arthur comes from. He's head of the customs house in New York right. City. Um, so yeah, you have to also add you know political power and party building to that as well. Um, and then of course, the tariff, at least Republicans will say, protects millions of jobs. It, it helps ensure that American industries are competitive with those around the world. Um, and then it, it helps you know maintain a balance of trade that you know, whoever is running the economy at that moment considers favorable. So all these economic issues, all these political issues, and then add to that also an argument about region, because the tariff is broadly seen as helping the industrial Northeast and Midwest, but hurting agricultural areas in the West and the South, uh, because it's the tariff is, is at, at least many would argue, uh, protects manufacturing industries, but doesn't protect raw good industries right there's no tariff on agricultural produce brought in from overseas well and and the tariffs that do exist on agricultural produce like sugar uh, Mm. are especially interesting and controversial and tied up with american empire and we can get to that later (laughs) but definitely you know you add in all these issues together and you get the tariff and that's kind of one of those moments that you you kind of have to pause for a moment and think, okay, why don't they talk about the tariff more then? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> there seems to be so much that is wrapped up in it. Some of it is just you know doomsaying and arguing. Um, there are a number of speeches where the one side or the other will say the tariff is the worst thing in the world. Is it is government theft? And others will say without the tariff, you know, the American economy cannot exist. And and obviously those are the far extremes that are probably not true. But within the bounds of those two ideas, pretty much all opinions are on the table about the tariff. And people are willing to debate and argue about it. And some of the most interesting speeches in Congress are about the tariff, which is unfortunate because it's hard to read them uh, now and really feel that fire. Uh, but hopefully, if you think about it in those terms, in terms of economics, uh, government expenditures and savings, political power, regional arguments, and then, of course, add in foreign policy, because a tariff is a tariff on foreign goods. You have to then negotiate uh, and discuss with other countries who might be upset if you're taxing their imports. Uh, truly, it encompasses a lot. And generally speaking, at this point, the Republicans are in favor of a strong tariff and the Democrats are opposed arguing it hurts consumers and farmers and non-industrial folks. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And, and I, I think <laughs> keeping everything in broad terms, because these parties do shift and, and change and they always have their idiosyncratic members. Um, if, if someone writes in and say, well, there's this one Republican who was you know, against a high tariff. It's like, yes, I'm sure there is. Uh, right. These are very weird coalitions sometimes. 
Okay. Is there anything else listeners should know about the party coalitions in the 1880s when talking about Blaine versus Cleveland, the showdown of 1884? I, I mean, I think that religion is an important element to add into this. Um, the, the place of Catholic voters in uh, the party system uh, who generally are Democrats at this time, uh, kind of Catholic Democrats living in large cities, uh, this isn't always the case, but generally Catholic Democrats are Catholic, but there's, you know, kind of fighting between, you know, those sides. And it, over the course of the, uh, the 1880s, the, pro- the kind of Republican moralistic Protestant element becomes more pronounced. Uh, there's a lot of debate, especially in the late 1880s, uh, over whether uh, Republicans are attempting to kind of impose a Northeastern Protestantism on the rest of the country um, and Catholic voters and, and also non-Catholic voters, uh, but those who aren't, you know, kind of this particular form of Protestant are a little upset about that. Uh, and there's uh, a great deal of debate over kind of which which party each side, each religion uh, or religious sect should ally with. But in this moment, it's, it's critical to note that the Democrats generally have Catholic votes, but that it's up for debate. And the Republicans are more likely to be the party of native-born Protestants who are maybe leaning towards banning the sale of spirituous liquors. Yes. And that is, of course, exactly how they would describe it. Right. That's right. All right. So the election of 1884 had one of the highest turnouts in all of American history, although scholars have also said it was a election seemingly less infused with substance and more taken up with nasty personal scandals than most other elections before or since. Why was it that the campaign between Blaine and Cleveland became so nasty and personal, at least as carried out in the streets and in the press? Well, I do. One thing that I've always thought about in this election and a few others in the Gilded Age is when they say, oh, they're not debating issues like, you know, the parties are, you know, have no divisions and, you know, no one's talking about issues, usually because everyone knows what those issues are. Um, Like, it, it is not difficult if you were to drop back onto a street in Philadelphia in 1884 and ask someone on the street about what policies the Republican Party supports, they would know what the Republican Party supports. You know, they, they, were, they lived in a world where politics was the coin of the realm. People talked about politics a lot. And so even if the campaigns themselves aren't talking politics, aren't talking policy, the voters generally know the policies, and even if they don't have a you know a, a fully formed idea of what each party believes on every issue, they just like many voters today know where they stood on the issues that mattered to them. And so I, I do think it's important to caution that even if they're not talking about policy, policy is there. It's kind of the superstructure undergirding these parties, okay. and so that's something to keep in mind. But in terms of the candidates themselves, I think it's important to note that this is the first election since the end of the Civil War that the nominee for the Republican Party did not fight during the war. Right, so Blaine uh, was not a soldier during the war. He was in the State House and then in Congress. You know, honorable things to do. He helped make sure that the Union Army was successful by, you know, being in Congress. But he is not a former general. All the rest of them were f- former officers. Uh, all the former, all the other Republican candidates. Uh, of course, 
that doesn't become as much of an issue because Grover Cleveland didn't fight in the war either. He paid a substitute uh, and, and chose not to fight in the war. And so the kind of the issue of you know, the Civil War and, and what's often called waving the bloody shirt, which is what Republicans would do to say, ah, how, you know, how could you support the party of, you know, secession, that's the Democrats, when we fought and died, blah, blah, blah. Blaine definitely does that. He, he waves the bloody shirt at times, sometimes quite a mm. bit, but he's not able to call on the store of, you know, campaign memories, you know, like people don't refer to him as general, you know, it's, so I do think there's a, this is now getting far enough away from the civil war that while the issues of reconstruction and rebellion and all that are still very much live, the standard bearers themselves weren't fighting and dying. So I think that's important to note for this. That makes sense. And we should add a, one of the key Republican constituencies was U.S. Army veterans from the Civil War. Yeah, the and Grand the, Army of the Republic. Yeah, they voted. They were reliable Republican voters, majority yeah. anyway. Okay. Absolutely. So getting to the campaign of 84 itself, why was James Blaine the continental liar from the state of Maine who was allegedly affiliated with a scandalous past that was fit for all of this sensational coverage in the presses and that arguably dragged him down in this narrow election. Because he was. Uh, Blaine was involved <laughs> in a lot. Um, I, I think there, there's no better way to say it than that uh, if there was money being made in D.C. or anywhere else in the country that related to D.C., Blaine was involved. Um, he, he was involved in a lot of railroad speculation and a lot of other things, many of which many other members were involved in, and most of which was perfectly legal. But he was a man who always liked to be engaged in these things. He grew rich off of his speculations, and um, some of that is laudable, and some of that leaves us wondering how much of it was based on perhaps inside information or his political power, uh, his political connections. It's worth comparing him to a man like Reed, also from Maine, also Speaker of the House, who lived a comfortable life and tried to invest in a whole host of things. He constantly was investing in, in land uh, investments and schemes and things. Uh, scheme is not always a, a negative term, by the way. Um, but, but Reed did not grow financially rich. So he, he was comfortable and did okay. But Blaine did. Blaine was very good at this. And it left a stench of money and perhaps unavoidably a stench of corruption. And there were also plenty of moments that were beyond just the stench of corruption, including uh, a famous series of letters that seemed to implicate him in using his congressional influence to gain money on uh, railroad investments. Blaine claimed that he actually lost money on those investments, but the letters still included things like burn this letter at the bottom, uh, which seemed to be... Uh, a little shady. Yeah, and that made it into the chance, right? Yep. Blaine, Blaine liar James G. Blaine, continental liar from the state of Maine, burn this letter. Yep. And and it, it's difficult to think that, you know, all this smoke was without any fire. However, I think it's important to also note that the corruption issue itself was in part a created issue. Uh, Democrats were explicitly looking for something that they could win office on and connecting both Reconstruction and the Republican Party to the issue of corruption was very successful. Uh, That's not to say that corruption wasn't real. It's just that in a, in a vastly growing America with huge government contracts and, and all sorts of new business being done, 
corruption was all around. It, it was perhaps the price of doing business, but Democrats took advantage of that and made it into a very potent political issue uh, and were able to use it to great advantage, uh, both in toppling reconstruction governments in the South and also uh, tarring Blaine. I'm glad you brought this up. And it's it's worth mentioning a little a little further, right? So yeah, there's the problem of there was legitimately a lot of corruption during Reconstruction and the Gilded Age. And it is also true that in particular, at this time, Democrats and just opponents of civil rights for Black people did their best to say that, well, Black people were inherently more corrupt or susceptible to corruption and unfit for holding political power. And therefore, these opposition to Reconstruction was motivated not by bigotry, but by a horror at corruption and a desire for well-run government and and self-government. Absolutely. It was a very convenient fig leaf. But, you know, there, there were other leaves on that plant to extend a metaphor way beyond where I should. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think being able to keep both of those things in our heads together, you know, there's corruption, massive corruption, but it's also being used for political ends. Blaine was probably corrupt. He was probably involved in these things, but also it's being used for political ends. Um, you know, it's difficult to hold all those ideas in our head at the same time. And I think, a lot of the voters of that time also struggled with this idea. They knew that meant that fortunes were being made. They also knew that the economy was rapidly expanding and contracting and you know, all these wild things happening. And then politics seemed to be awash in money. And so how do you deal with that? Do you say anyone who it's touched is beyond the pale? Or do you say, you know, I'm going to vote for someone whose other issues I consider great, but has this, you know, one problem. Uh, and voters were asked to make that decision. Luckily, they weren't doing it in a vacuum. You know, they, there, there is another choice, right? And, and Cleveland emerged as this other choice, which um, it, we haven't yet trashed Cleveland as thoroughly as, uh, as we promised, but it's perhaps true. we're getting there. It's, it's coming. So Grover Cleveland, he runs in 1884 as a foe of corruption. Was he, in, besides purchasing a substitute in the Civil War, what else do we need to know about him? Was he, in fact, a foe of corruption and a, a friend to good government? Yes, uh, depending on how you define good government. But <laughs> Grover sure. Cleveland does seem to have led, at least up until the point that he's running for president in 18, 1884, uh, political life beyond reproach. He He had sought office by not seeking office. He um, he kind of rose through the ranks in New York very, very quickly. He was only governor of New York for a couple of years before he's being pitched for president. And in the convention which nominates him, one of his backers says, we love him for the enemies he has made. And when he says that, he is staring at Tammany Hall's delegates off to the corner. Tammany Hall, kind of the embodiment of municipal and democratic corruption at the time. And so Cleveland absolutely had built his reputation on opposing corruption in municipal and governmental affairs. And he seems to have taken that very seriously. Even though I don't like Grover Cleveland, you cannot say that he did not take his job seriously. Um, he, He would personally read and veto very specific small bills just because he didn't think they were warranted. Uh, he, he took his job as, you know, first in Buffalo and then as, as governor of New York and then later as president very seriously and does not seem to have been financially corrupt in that way. 
Okay. He also was an important pioneer in uh, Democratic presidential contenders getting embroiled in sex scandals, which was a a feature of the 1884 campaign. Could you fill us in on 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 what that was? Yeah, <laughs> I, I would say that um, this leads to one of those great moments. So Cleveland was at the time a bachelor, um, and during the campaign, it arose that he was one of the contenders to have been the father of a child by uh, a woman that he knew in Buffalo. Um, and I say it in that advisedly you know, vague way because he never actually said, yes, like, you know, obviously I'm the father of this child. Um, and I guess in part, if we give him credit, he didn't know. But all the other possibilities, all the other men who could have been the father were now married. And so mm. he said, you know, he was kind of accused. Uh, the woman, Maria Halpin, said, you know, like, he is the father of the child. And he said, yes, okay, yeah, I take responsibility. And initially, it seemed as if this would be this dramatic scandal. It really did shock a lot, especially of Democrats who had backed him. Because, again, his rise to prominence was so quick uh, that there was not really that much of a, a paper trail of Cleveland. And so they had endorsed him. Democrats had chosen him kind of on the promise that he was this upright, upstanding individual against corruption. And then here is this moment of not financial, perhaps, but moral corruption. And they're trying to decide what they think about it. Cleveland then says uh, in a telegram that he knows is going to get leaked, tell the truth to all of his friends in Buffalo. And so in a very kind of strange and also predictable way, this scandal rebounds partially to Cleveland's credit. Right. He, he is able to say, yes, this happened. I, you know, I, I fathered a child out of wedlock. However, I'm I'm being upfront about it. I, you know, it's kind of total honesty. All right. Here it is. And then moves back on. And because that fits with his pre-existing narrative of being a straight shooter, <laughs> you know, I, I don't I'm not I don't want to say that this scandal helped it. I don't think it did. I, you know, mm-hmm. I think it did actually hurt him politically. But he was able to kind of mitigate the scandal in uh, in a very Cleveland way, which is just pressing on because he knew that what he was going to do was right. And once Cleveland thinks he's doing something right, he keeps doing it. Okay. Again, so, I feel like I'm talking about how great Cleveland is now. And that's okay. not what I wanted to do. Don't worry. Now we're now we're getting to the, the rest of this. So he wins in 1884. He is then narrowly defeated in 1888 by Benjamin Harrison. And then Cleveland does the unprecedented and unrepeated feat of then winning a rematch against Harrison in 1892. And so really, if we're being honest, that is his, the thing he's best known for is the non-consecutive terms in the White House. And that's pretty much everything that most people know about him. Uh, Pretty much. Yes. Uh, which probably good for him because most of the substance of what he did as president, mm, not so great, according to very savvy critics like ourselves. So let's let's get into this. Uh, so I wanted to we're going to do a. this is a new angle that our show is taking. We are going to be weighing in. Well, I, I can, I think, safely assume not uh, in favor of some of the interpretations of a very famous and popular Mainer. A historian named Heather Cox Richardson, who some of our listeners may be fans of due to her blog, Letters from an American or News from an American or something like that. And she's written a number of books on the Republican Party. And to be clear, 
uh, Heather Cox Richardson has, in many respects, forgotten more things about the Republican Party than most of us will ever learn or know. So this is not an attack on her overall expertise, but on her interpretations, yes. So she responded after Donald Trump announced uh, his campaign for non-consecutive re-election at Mar-a-Lago last month uh, when people were saying Cleveland and Richardson said that uh, DJT is no Grover Cleveland and threatened to do uh, you know a big expose on the ways in which Grover Cleveland was in fact a decent president um, and, and she was kind of coming out as a Cleveland defender. Gideon, I want you to, I want to give you the opportunity. So is especially Cleveland's second term, especially, but also his first, are these, his, are his terms in the White House worthy of defense and, and positive framing? I, I do think that because Cleveland has this non-consecutive term thing, being able to assess the term separately is important. Fair. Um, and and I, I think, yeah, okay, let's start with the second term, which when Cleveland retakes the Oval Office, or actually, sorry, there is no Oval Office yet. When Cleveland retakes the White House, he does so without divided government. And he has a trifecta in modern terms, mm-hmm. um, and he uses it to repeal pretty much every last vestige of Reconstruction laws, all the last laws that protected Black voters, many of which were not being enforced anyway. Um, but he really does uh, you know, strip away a lot of these things. And there, there's some debate like, oh, yes, Democrats in Congress pushed them. But Cleveland was perfectly happy to veto bills if he didn't agree with them. He did that a lot. He used the veto more than any president before. Uh, and so in his uh, yeah. the first two years of his second term, he takes action to remove any protections for Black voters. Uh, and I, I think it's very difficult to discuss Cleveland without reckoning with that, without start. Uh, to me, you have to start there. Uh, and then I know that Richardson focuses on how, you know, the Panic of 1893, which then leads Republicans to retake control of the House, is, is unfairly blamed on Cleveland. And, and yeah, she's right. It is unfairly blamed on Cleveland. But that doesn't, you know, kind of balance out the fact that he proudly removes the last vestiges of Reconstruction from the books of federal law. That's a good point. And I'd like to comment further. So Richardson's, I think her most well-known book among the broader public is called To Make Men Free, A History of the Republican Party. Uh, it first came out in 2014, but it was reissued with a, with a new foreword by Richardson in 2021. And so in that, I, I want to be careful how I, how I say this, because I'm not implying she's on the same level by any means, or even in the same league or sport as Dinesh D'Souza. The the charlatan. Where are you going with this, buddy? <laughs> well, no. Here's what I'm saying. Like, the, I think Dinesh D'Souza is a Republican or a conservative hack. Who the whole point of his argument is essentially that the Democrats have always been the party of racism and segregation and white supremacy, and everything they did has always been bad. And the Republicans have been quote unquote the good guys. And Richardson doesn't go that far in reverse in attacking the Republican Party. But it does seem to me that basically by the early 1870s, her narrative, she's very quick to, and interested to frame the Republicans as the party of big business who achieve everything they get by demagoguing and propaganda and sort of unsavory means. And she's already 
by the 1890s kind of looking and I want to be clear she doesn't she's not a fan of of racism or discrimination or anything but she just doesn't really want to talk about that aspect of the Democrats economic populism such as it is in her treatment of say Cleveland uh, or, or the Democrats versus Republicans in the 1880s and 90s and so to that end she talked about the Chinese Exclusion Act as uh, to, I, I looked at it again before this interview as enshrining economic competition into American law as its major major legacy, which, like, I'm sorry, like that is not the major point of the Chinese Exclusion <laughs> Act of the 1880s. Right, and she didn't talk in that paragraph that she talks about it as having much to do at all about just racist. West Coast white Americans wanting to keep Chinese immigrants out. Yeah. Well, and, and so much of this is the question of, you know, race or class. And, right. you know, any historian of America will say, oh, you can't, do, the or has to be removed. You have to talk about both. Yes. Uh, and so I think, you know, in that sense, that, that element you're, you're quoting there is focusing on kind of the class and economic element um, and maybe leaving out the racial element of it too much. I, I think that comes up a great deal in this era where it's to tell a unified narrative of the kind of the transitions of the Democratic and Republican parties from where they were in 1870 to where they are in, say, you know, 1965. It is impossible to tell that narrative without talking about both race and class constantly overlapping and you know intertwined. And I think if you try to tell that narrative by focusing on class, you you will get to 1965 and no one will be sure how you got there. And, right. and that's part of why I think that, yeah, we, we need to grapple with even the failed attempts at you know racial equality that the Republican Party made, why they failed in this era. In, in this, I'm referring to when Thomas Reed, when he's Speaker of the House, attempts to pass essentially a voting rights bill in 1890. And kind of that moment as is this a moment of class defeating race, a, a moment of the big business side of the Republican Party defeating the pro-racial justice side? Um, and, and I think it's very easy to interpret it that way. I also think it's worth interpreting it as the racial justice side of the party was strong enough to bring that bill to the House and pass it in the House, and then it fails in the Senate. Uh, and so it's not such an easy story to say the Republican Party abandoned you know, black voters in the 1870s and never the twain shall meet again. Um, and so and I, I do should, think emphasizing that is important. Yes. And so returning to this and how it gets framed is uh, Richardson talks about it and she points out that the uh, that this elections bill, it empowers the federal government to theoretically send troops to protect the integrity of elections, both in First the First to send inspectors. Sorry, yes, inspectors first. And it will apply both in the South to protect Black rights, but then also in the North. And there are there is uh, there are Republicans and especially, you know, business owners who articulate concerns and you can weigh in on how good faith these are or not, you know, about voter fraud or or interference by northern uh, recent immigrants and, and working people and the working poor in, in northern election precincts. Well, and one key thing to mention here, though, is that that would have only extended a pre-existing set of observation in the North. So 
at that time, there are already inspectors, federal inspectors on the ground in large northern cities. Uh, Congress has sent you know, inspectors to those large northern cities. They're policing large, mostly you know, kind of democratic urban areas, uh, attempting to ferret out fraud. This would have essentially extended that regime of observation throughout the rest of the country. Uh, and so I do think that you know, there already was federal election observation, but it was only really happening in the North. And this is saying, maybe we should try doing that everywhere. Um, and it fails, but it comes very close to succeeding. It comes very close to passage. And that, I suppose, was one of my major sort of eyebrows raising is that when Richardson writes about this bill, it's entirely through a a cynical lens. And she says, well, the Republicans, spurred by big business, wanted to protect their majorities against competition. And so she gives equal billing to the Southern opponents uh, labeling of this legislation as the force bill. And strongly implies that the force is the major intention and that the civil rights benefits are kind of ancillary and a mostly a product of just kind of, you know, cynical politicking. And I don't mean to imply that there aren't Republicans who just want to win elections, of course. I mean, the political parties want to. And that, you know, they certainly hope that black voters in the South are going to vote for them. Or, or anything like that. But in terms of the framing, it's the there wasn't really any idealism there. And that seems to be part of her major argumentative thread in which she's very eager to cast the Republicans as fairly overwhelmingly already the party of just big business and, and plutocracy and and already having, you know, having abandoned whatever its commitments were to to, to some semblance of, of racial equality. Well, and to connect this back to Blaine and Maine, uh, which I'm sure you'd be happy with, yes. uh, we, when we were talking earlier about how Blaine is making this calculation as to which parts of the country he wants to engage politically and, and how, he, you know, how he accepts the Chinese and backs the Chinese Exclusion Act to try to win votes in the West, but kind of abandons Black voters in the South, the Federal Elections Bill in 1890, yes, it might be cynical to try to win elections, but it's the Republican Party saying, hey, if black voters in the South are able to vote freely, they might vote for us. They probably will. Uh, And then we'll be able to build a Republican party that has a strong Southern wing and and potentially a strong Southern black wing. And then maybe their concerns will actually be taken up. So I think thinking about it in terms of partisan advantage without thinking about how that partisan advantage then would have potentially led to uh, a very strong black coalition within the Republican Party, a Southern Black coalition, the Republican Party that would have power and have the ability to make its needs articulated on on the federal stage. Like, yes, the Republicans want to win power. And if they win power through Black votes in the South, which the federal elections bill kind of promised and hoped for, then the Republican Party is a different party. You know, suddenly yeah. it has to respond to those, you know, those concerns. It it has legislators who are articulating those concerns. Uh, and so I, I do think that see, seeing it as just a, you know, a cynical power grab, uh, it matters where you grab that power. It matters who is, you know, grabbing it with you. On that level, I've always taken a dim view of when people oppose legislation or policies that make our system of government more representative or egalitarian on the basis of, well, 
the people who are pushing this, they're hoping to get something out of it. And so therefore, we should oppose it because it might help their side and that's cynical. And my response is, well, yeah, but the people who are opposing this good government or more representative reform, they're also opposing it for reasons of political gain and cynicism. And the status so, quo is not neutral. Right. So like, let's take a recent example as Washington, D.C. statehood. So when people, when Republicans oppose it and say, well, Democrats only care about D.C. statehood because it's going to get them an extra two senators and almost everybody in the Capitol votes Democrat right now. My response is, and you oppose it because almost everybody in the Capitol votes Democrat right now, and you don't want them to vote for more representatives that don't agree with you. And so I don't understand why how the people vote in a given area should therefore affect their rights to have representation. And, and I also think it's worth noting that most of the times people are wrong about these calculations. They are. When, when Hawaii and Alaska were added to the union, most political commentators expected Hawaii to be permanently Republican and Alaska Democratic. Uh, you know, the, these calculations are usually wrong. Usually, if you give people a, an ability to make a choice, they will make their own choice. Yes. And of course, parties are free to try and compete for voters everywhere. And so that always struck me as silly, the idea that like, well, that's not fair because these people don't like us. So letting them vote is <laughs> yeah, really maybe unfair. because you're trying to deny them the right to vote. Yeah, exactly right. Maybe if you didn't antagonize them so much, uh, maybe they would be willing to vote for you. But so, uh, yeah, right. So this elections bill, which opponents call the force bill, uh, Thomas Reed as Speaker of the House is shepherding that through. So once again, we have another main speaker. Why does this elections bill fail, which we should add again is it's attempted before Cleveland. This is in the the Harrison the interregnum. Harrison. Yes. I, I knew you were going to say interregnum. I just I, knew. Yeah. It. Because I how didn't. often do you get to say interregnum? If you don't say it when you have the chance, oh come on, come on. You'll regret True. it. So anyway, so during the Harrison interregnum, this is when Speaker Reed is shepherding through this uh, elections bill. So why does it fail? Well so first Reed takes up kind of those same reforms that Blaine had attempted uh, in 1875. So trying to block dilatory motions, Reed takes that much further uh, because Democrats are essentially filibustering. They're refusing to answer a quorum call. Basically, they're refusing to say that they're present uh, in the House. And at that moment, there is no statutory power for the Speaker of the House to say, ah, but I see you sitting before me, therefore I'm counting you present. If they don't respond to their name, they're not counted present. It's a ridiculous system. And Reed thinks it's ridiculous. Um, and so Reed does what kind of no one else was willing to do, uh, which is say, I see you in front of me, I'm counting you present. It leads to this massive hullabaloo, this you know, huge debate. Um, <laughs> and, and people use Blaine's words from 1875 when he said, I don't think I have the power to do that. I'm going to find a middle ground. Um, Democrats use his, Blaine's words against Reed and try to say, hey, look, you're you know, the great plumed knight of Maine, which is one of the many uh, great nicknames for Blaine, uh, wasn't willing to do what you're doing. Ah, I see. Okay. And so that's how he's able to move the 
federal elections bill forward in the House. He's able to kind of cut off uh, the dilatory motions. It changes the House forever. The House that operates today operates on essentially the Reed rules, uh, the set of rules that he puts forward, uh, which allow the Speaker to say when he thinks a motion is dilatory and to cut it off. It forces people to respond to a roll call. You know, it kind of makes the business of the House more of a business instead of this insane hullabaloo. Um, mm. And Reed is really thrilled. He, he, he thinks this is great. Uh, you know, finally, the House will be able to legislate instead of being locked in these endless quorum calls. It, it is very controversial. It leads to him getting the nickname Czar Reed because he's seemingly <laughs> dictatorial. Um, also, no one can decide how to spell Czar then either. So I guess. That's oh, okay. Yeah. So does that mean that then the the locus of of dilatoriness and obfuscation and where good ideas go to die moves to the Senate for good after the speakership of Reed? Not always, uh, because one of the key elements of Reed's reform is that it vests this huge power in the speaker. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it, it makes it much more difficult to move something forward if the speaker doesn't want it to move forward. And uh, about 15 years later, Joe Cannon, who's a Republican speaker of the House, kind of overuses this power. Um, He becomes a little too czar-like, and it leads to kind of a revolt against him. So there are still moments of the House being a stumbling block. Uh, But yes, largely the Senate becomes the place where endless debate is possible. And that's what happens to the federal elections bill in part. Democratic senators, uh, led by Senator Gorman of Maryland, uh, wage kind of endless filibuster against it. And then at a critical moment, uh, when a year has passed, so, you know, this this bill is passed by the Republican House and, you know, a year basically passes as the Senate is debating it, trying to debate it. A group of Republican senators from the West, so Nevada and other areas in the West, join with Democrats to set aside the federal elections bill and instead talk about a silver coinage bill. I don't really want to go into silver coinage too much. No, that's fine. Yeah. Uh, but basically to, to coin, uh, to, to expand the coinage of silver, which the Western mining states, which mine silver, are very interested in. And they set aside the federal elections bill. It, it doesn't pass. And that right there is where Richardson is able to make that direct one-to-one correlation, right? Here's an economic measure that pushes aside uh, voting rights and racial measure. And I think that's why that argument is actually powerful and interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think it's, you know, it, it can be over, that, that lesson can be overdrawn because at the end of the day, the Democrats are going to keep filibustering that thing. And the senators are probably not going to be able to invoke cloture. They were not going to be able to bring that debate to a halt, to a halt. So the particular way the federal elections bill died kind of encourages this idea that the Republican Party chooses big business and economics over race. But I don't think it's quite as clear, right? I, I think that's too easy of a comparison, perhaps, right. uh, for us. That's a good point. And I think that's a good transition to another further bashing of Grover Cleveland through the lens of these interpretations. And again, that the I think that, yeah, when we've talked, some of our beef with Richardson is also the drawing of perhaps too stark of sort of white hats and black hats and monocausal explanations for certain things. Uh, Grover Cleveland. So if he's this figure of, you know, anti-corruption and he's a Democrat, which uh, Richardson in particular is framing as economically, at least the party of the people. That strikes me as an odd framing because Grover Cleveland was an Eastern Democrat who you mentioned silver was a fan of tight money and 
uh, I don't think he is most people's idea of like a, a tribune for the little guy, right? Doesn't he send in the army to break up all kinds of strikes? Yeah. And, and again, though, that largely is in his second term. Mm. Um, and I think that a lot of the stuff that happens in his first term is more in part because he's dealing with divided government. He, he's much he's making all these stand. He's taking stances and making statements. So in his first term, um, he takes a strong stand against the tariff. He gives this impassioned presidential message, kind of the equivalent of the State of the Union um, against the tariff. He also returns Confederate. He tries to return Confederate battle flags um, in 1887. Um, you know, he spends uh, Decoration Day, which is kind of, you know, Memorial Day uh, fishing instead of attending any. He does all these things that manage to really annoy a lot of, especially northern constituencies and not entirely Republican constituencies. But to, for the most part, they're kind of gestures, right? It's in his second term where he's doing these things like repealing voting rights laws, sending in troops to break up strikes, you know that. And and I think it's easy to look at Cleveland and see him as a small C conservative, someone who, you know, believes in, you know, in government, not doing too much, you know, and holding back. Um, and if that's the case, you kind of have to then put the first and second term Cleveland's against each other and say, well, here he is in his second term with the power to do things. And he's doing them, you know, he, right. and, and he, when he puts government's thumb on the scale, it is not in favor of people who need help. It is largely in favor of, you know, conservatism, of, of maintaining a status quo uh, that he came from. The true Cleveland stands that I'm aware of are paleo-conservative types. Like you can read positive treatments of him at the American conservative. Uh, oh, straightforwardly yeah. as, as the last conservative Democrat. That, yes. That's kind of, yeah. And they never want to talk about, oh, OK, but what does that conservatism look like? Oh, right. Yes. It means dismantling voting rights. You know, it means it means these other things. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, and, and his I, vociferous opposition to woman suffrage yes. at a time when that opposition was no longer universal. Right. And I think it's worth the comparison that Thomas Reed was a staunch proponent of women's suffrage, though, interestingly, Reed's wife was opposed to women's suffrage. Uh, uh, but yes, they had some good debates. But yeah, <laughs> they, like, this is a moment when that issue was live, when they're, you know, Western states largely are passing, um, you know, laws that allow women to vote. Um, and, and there's kind of we might, you know, do the whole, ah, but, you know, men of their times, what little did they know? Uh, a lot yes. of them knew. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and so you're absolutely right that we should take Cleveland in the totality of his time, say, okay, what, you know, what did he choose to take a stand on when he had the power and the ability to do it? And I don't think much of it is laudatory. I, I think there are plenty of things about him that are. Um, he was, for instance, opposed to uh, American empire. Like he, he didn't mm. want to annex Hawaii. There, there are plenty of ways that we can, make an honest case for Cleveland. I just don't think that's the case that's being made. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think the, that is the problem too, of sometimes when people want to use these political figures like Cleveland as like, well, let's just talk about the ways in which he was really nice and ate his vegetables and, you know, was, yeah. was nice to his children or, you know, that kind of stuff. These history as morality tale, you know, about, oh, you can learn about perseverance or something by studying like him. And I'm, and I think that I suspect you agree that usually historians, professional historians are usually leery of that kind of thing. Um, right. 
it, and it's all too easy to make the Cleveland to Trump comparison and be like, ah, and Cleveland seems like a morally upstanding guy in comparison. And I'm just saying, yeah, but what is the purpose of saying that? Like, yes, that leaves so much, you know, that that draws the tissue so thin here. Uh, and, And I do think that, you know, when it comes to a guy like Cleveland who had power and used it and yes, there are the elements where, you know, he worked hard at his desk and decided which bills to veto when other presidents left those things to their underlings, uh, you know, or, or they just, you know, signed many bills without thinking too much of them. It's, it, yeah, okay. But that's the small change of the presidency. Yes. And I, I think that focusing on those elements really ignores, okay, when this man left office both times, did he leave office having made Americans lives better? Did, did he lay a groundwork for, for the world to be a better place? You know, look at all these very grand pronouncements, but the president has a great deal of power even at that time. Uh, and I don't think he wielded it for good. If we circle back, maybe thinking about this, this time period. So you have your helpful appraisals of America's only two non-consecutive term president who has been in the media now. So hopefully our, our listeners are slightly more up on their Cleveland knowledge. So don't forget, he's, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, is he one of only two presidents to have won the popular vote three times in a row? Um, I mean... It's so got to be him and FDR, right? Him and FDR would have, to, it would have to be him and FDR. But so we should, I, I feel very strongly about this. I don't think it's fair in the elections of 1884, 88, and 92 to talk about a Democrat winning the popular vote when the popular vote in the Southern states was so affected by ballot box stuffing and fraud and intimidations to keep Black voters and white Republicans away from the polls, that given that the elections were so close, we're talking, you know, separated. I think Garfield in 1881 by 8,000 votes in the yeah. decisive states or whatever. So like the vote count is so close in those in those days. I don't think we can honestly straight-facedly talk about wi- Cleveland winning the popular vote three times. I'll like, give you I, that. Yeah. Right? Like it would be, I think that there has to be an enormous asterisk. Fair. But then of course, FDR would have to have that asterisk too. He I mean, obviously, he won. Well, his landslides were so huge that I think he still won the popular vote anyway. But you're we only right. care about voter suppression when it affects the result of an election. Not at all. I think every, <laughs> um, I think every election between oh, 1876 and 1964 should have an asterisk next to it when we're talking yeah. about the popular vote. But if we're talking about winning the popular vote in right. terms of raw yeah. numbers, FDR's wins were so huge that. Even if the South were a true democracy during those eras, FDR would have would have won. Uh, but certainly 1960, with JFK narrowly winning yeah. the election, the popular vote, there needs to be an asterisk next to that that victory for sure. Um, well, we could do a whole other podcast on that one. We could, we could. Yeah. So circling back, though, rarely do I do the the, the lessons side of thing or anything else. But <laughs> given that, given that there is a Likely as not, Kevin McCarthy, he has very transparently wanted to be Speaker of the House for quite some time. And he is now within shouting distance of achieving that goal. This is also, with all this talk of tariffs now, 
as well as uh, <laughs> really today. stretching on this one now. <laughs> no, I know, but like there's all these echoes from times past. Yeah. The the 19th century saw contested votes for the speaker that we haven't seen either. Yeah. So I don't know if Kevin McCarthy were to draw lessons from history from speakers of the House past, like James G. Blaine and Thomas Brackett Reed. What perhaps useful information might he draw from those Republican speakers past? I feel like the one that really sticks with me is that so when Reed changes the rules of the House to make it easier for legislation to pass, Democrats say, don't forget, we'll be in the majority someday, too, and we'll be able to undo everything you've done. And Reed responds, no, you won't, because if you because I am reforming the House to make it better. If you roll back my reforms, I will make your lives hell. Uh, and <laughs> and that, that is actually what happens. So Reed, you know, passes all these laws, you know, does this, you know, big reform. Democrats take the House back. They roll back Reed's rules and they kind of return the House to to some degree um, to what it was before. And, you know, within two cycles, within two congressional elections, Reed is able to bring the House to a standstill just as effectively as his opponents did. And they have to reimpose his rules, right? Like the, the Democrats reimpose the Reed rules so that they can pass their program, right? And I think one of the one of the key and, and Reed is you know very magnanimous, of course, at that moment. He stands up and, and says, you know, no greater testament could be made to this moment than the fact that the house is actually working. Like I'm very thrilled. That's kind of one of the elements that I think is really easy to lose in this moment is that any changes that you make to the house uh, like will always be with the house, even if they get undone or redone, like making a change to how the house actually governs changing you know the body itself has an indelible impact and i think that we've grown kind of accustomed to a stasis level in house procedure it's possible that won't always be the case that the house will change how it operates i don't know exactly how but in some way and and i i think it's important that people know that that's how this goes that if you make a change to make governance easier or harder your opponents will be able to make that change too uh and you know, just even on a broader level as well, thinking about leading the House as an institution instead of thinking about leading your party uh, is a very distinct difference. And the Speaker is, yes, elected by their party, but also elected by the House. And thinking, you know, men like Reed and Blaine were party animals, you know, to the hilt. They, they were proud Republicans. But being Speaker of the House meant something, too. It meant being responsible to that body. And that's something that both men did. I think, you know, Reed embodied that to a remarkable degree. He saw himself as trying to lead, but also trying to listen to his house. And he was so effective as a speaker because he heard it and was able to understand what the house wanted. Uh, so kind of those two elements of, of being a leader of the house, not just of the party, and also thinking about how what you do will indeed echo in future election cycles. I like it. Not that I'm the only audience that matters, but I like it. That sounds good. I'm convinced. Sold. Yes. Since we have discussed some of the work of, again, the the famous and, and justifiably for her accomplishments, uh, Heather Cox Richardson, for listeners who might be interested in reading a different perspective on the late 19th century political scene and the issues at stake between Republicans and Democrats, is there any author and their work that you would recommend? I do think um, 
very specifically, if anyone else wants to join me in my Thomas Reed fandom, the book to read is Mr. Speaker by James Grant. Uh, it was written a few years ago. It's a terrific, uh, auto, a terrific biography of Thomas Reed. Uh, and one of the most interesting things about the book is that Grant is a kind of economically conservative, more so than I am. And so it's interesting to read his take on Reed. Uh, and, and he's a terrific scholar and, and does a great job of uh, telling the story, but also kind of brings out his own thoughts on you know political economy and on Congress uh, in a way that I found really interesting. And you know, I, I absolutely didn't agree with many of his positions, but constantly went, oh, you know, I'm, I'm glad that he's bringing himself into the book a little bit here. Yeah. Um, so that's a great one, Mr. Speaker by James Grant. A more recent book on this era uh, is uh, John Grinspan's The Age of Acrimony, which is kind of focused on politics of the Gilded Age. Uh, it's a really fun read. It really kind of puts you in that moment and helps you understand kind of especially what I was saying about how politics pervaded a lot of this era. A lot, a lot of that you know, comes out in Age of Acrimony. Um, there's great descriptions of how people would go around on streetcars and um, ask everyone who they were voting for in the coming election and take a poll. And that and, and then pub- that would be published in a newspaper the next day. That was considered <laughs> interesting. Right. Oh, yeah. I asked everyone on my streetcar, you know, 75 percent were going for Blaine and that's in the paper. You know, so I, I, that's, it's a terrific book in that regard. Kind of I love that that it. hasn't stopped. They're sort of like, well, did you see all the voters for Trump out there? It's going to be a landslide, <laughs> you know, like that kind of thing. Yeah, they're still visiting diners in Ohio. So. Exactly right. <laughs> we should also give a shout out to Kate Mazur, right? Of course. The, your very own advisor and a, a beloved mentor and scholar at, at Northwestern who has approached things from a, a somewhat different angle. And so what of her work should should maybe our, our listeners look into? I think, so Kate's most recent book, Until Justice Be Done, is kind of an essential prequel to everything we've been discussing. Mm-hmm. Um, truly understanding the Civil Rights Bill of 1875, you know, impossible without reading Until Justice Be Done. Um, it kind of traces how the 14th Amendment and, and kind of other Reconstruction era laws and changes, you know, bubbled up and built over the course of the 40 years before the Civil War, especially in northern states and how a number of states that we think of as you know, anti-slavery states also had very racist laws on the books and how the fight against those racist laws kind of shaped the post-Civil War and during the Civil War uh, legal changes. So uh, Kate Mazur's book, Until Justice Be Done. Great. All right. Well, Gideon, this was fun having you back on the show and especially now that I'm a much more seasoned podcaster, aware of where everything was, because you were, as as listeners might not know, because of the when it aired, uh, you were my first ever interview, and you did well. Uh, well, I remember the first time we did something weird where we had to re-record it because the sound didn't work, and that was that was it was classic. just extra practice. It was so we got to do it twice, and it didn't air first because baseball famously air, aired first, but. Uh, you were you were one of the first. You were one of that elite, one of those trailblazing precedent setters. Do I get a watch? Something. We'll have to. We'll think of something. We'll make it happen. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. Yes, uh, always a pleasure, and we'll we'll definitely have to speak again soon. Absolutely. Gideon Cohn, postar. Thanks so much. Thanks, Ian. That's our show. Review us, like us, and follow us. 
wherever you get your podcast. Recommend us to your friends so the fandom can spread. And join us next time for a genuine celebrity guest. The creators of Temp Tales, Maine's beloved animated workplace comedy that is nevertheless not safe for work. I'm referring, of course, to the geniuses at O-Chang Comics. They are true luminaries in the history of 21st century Maine. The characters they created have struck a chord with Mainers and become beloved figures. One of them, Bud Kelly, just might have sat down for an interview with me during part of our next episode. Did I actually get this elusive figure to share his thoughts? Join us soon to find out. That's next time on Mainly History.